Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Atheist Experience. We're live. It is Sunday, May 12, 2013. I'm Matt Dillahunty. Joining me, Russell Glasser. A rare combination. Absolutely. But uh, very glad to do this uh, today. By the way, it's Mother's Day. I've already called, in the United States anyway, uh, I've already called my mother and wished her... I, and as somebody who has been called a mother and a dirty mother and a stupid mother and an ignorant mother and an evil mother and all those things, I'm going to take some credit for today, too. I'll send you a card. Thank you. This is a live public access show out of Austin, Texas, and we take live calls and we talk about uh, mm, all kinds of stuff, actually. Religion, atheism, science, uh, but mostly it's about having conversations with people who are believers and ask them what they believe and why, and we can have discussions about that. Uh, for the past seven years, I've been the president of the Atheist Community of Austin, which is um, the organization that we're associated with, and I am no longer the president. Yay for all the people who were waiting for me to be uh, dethroned or whatever else. Uh, two weeks ago, or actually last Sunday, um, while I was in L.A., the membership met and had elections to elect a new board of directors, uh, which happens every year. I just, you know, kept kept on running and winning. But uh, your new president for the Atheist Community of Austin is Jen Peoples. Yay! Yay! And the new vice president is Don Rhodes. And the rest of the board, we'll get an announcement up on the website at some at some point. Uh, today for our lecture series, which we, we have uh, every month, I got up and talked a little bit about what I've seen over the years that I've been involved with the ACA and um, some thoughts about looking forward. And then um, uh, my my cohorts and my friend Russell got up to say some very kind words, and the ACA had got me this this nice plaque commemora- commemorating the seven years that I uh, served as uh, president of the board. I'm still going to be involved with the ACA. I'm still going to be here doing the show. You can't get rid of me that easy. Um, but I'm going to move on to some other projects, and I'm going to let some people uh, steer the ACA in a direction that may pe- perhaps people have more time or, or better ideas. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. And other than, you know, I mean, I'd, on the one hand, I'd say there's not much that's going to change, but hopefully I hope lots of things change. I hope um, that Jen... Uh, starts to steer the ACA in a direction that just grows leaps and bounds. And so I'm, I'm very encouraged by uh, the future, just in general, of all of this. Yep. Jen's uh, very energetic as well, and she, uh, I'm sure, will do good things. So you had some stuff you wanted to talk about before we got to 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm going to abuse the co-host chair a little bit since <laughs> I never get to actually set a topic, but I'm going to do this in a very ill-advised way, which is that I'm going to just talk off the cuff about something that's on my mind and I don't really have any notes. Um, I'm sure I've covered this before, but it's about peer review. Um, there, there's uh, Basically, when you approach the question of knowledge, theists like to uh, uh, treat things as if they, I, I mean, theists take faith and divine revelation very seriously, and, um, you, you know, when you're having a conversation with Christians, you it often comes down to them saying, well, you know, this is just my faith, and you can't argue with it, you can't challenge it, it's just something I personally believe. And generally, when that when the conversation comes to that point, it's sort of a lost cause. It's like, okay, yeah, I admit that uh, you believe what you believe, and absolutely nothing can change your mind because you don't care about figuring things out uh, what they're like in reality. Um, the reason that the reason that science works as well as it does, as far as uh, deciding things which are true and coming up with reliable ways to leverage the things that we know into making cool technologies, um, is because it's based on a principle of repeatability. Uh, we don't go for the idea that, that that there's my truth and there's you and there's your truth and uh, you can believe whatever you want to believe because we believe that there's an actual real world out there where stuff happens uh, that we can find out uh, for real. I mean, uh, our knowledge should comport more or less to that reality. Uh, and just feeling very strongly that, that the Christian God exists and Jesus died for your sins or that uh, the Muslim Allah exists uh, or, or that there's some kind of universal life force doesn't really cut it in sort of a, most, uh, in sort of a postmodern way. Or at a minimum, um, yeah. even if it's not necessarily belief that there is an external world where there are two, that we are forced, as a matter of practicality, to deal with the world that we experience exactly. and, and seem to have a shared experience of, uh, irrespective of whether or not it's the ultimate reality. And just, just so, so that I mean, we don't get ourselves just calling in to say... Yeah, which we do from time to time. And, uh, you know, you're right that even if we discovered that we were living in the Matrix, it would still be worthwhile to figure out what the rules of the Matrix are because everybody sort of seems to experience this shared reality of some sort uh, and figuring out whether it's consistent and has rules that we can figure out is important either way, right? Um, so science has this thing that we call peer review, which is basically uh, that if you think that you've got a brilliant new idea, you submit it to a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, so everybody uh, talks about often Einstein overturning some of Newton's laws of motion. Um, but when he came up with these ideas, when he came up with relativity and quantum mechanics, which he didn't really accept himself uh, even to the day he died, um, Einstein proposed these ideas through sort of official channels by publishing in German physics uh, uh, peer-reviewed journals. And the effect that this peer review has is that other scientists can review it 
and they can copy the procedures that he claims to have used, and they can see if they get the same results. So while we never know for sure whether one person's personal faith, whatever's going on inside his head, is an accurate picture of the world, and the question, the answer to that to Ken Ham's famous question, were you there, is generally not true because I'm not sitting in the lab with the scientist doing the experiment. What the peer-reviewed paper does is it lays out the methods that the guy used, and then you can check them out and publish your own paper saying, yeah, I've just confirmed that I got the same thing this guy got, or no, this guy was full of crap because I did exactly the same things he said he did, and that thing didn't happen. Um, a few weeks ago, Matt got a call from a guy who was into breatharianism. You remember that guy? <laughs> um, and it took me back, too, because when I was writing stuff for Useless Knowledge back mm -hmm. then, there was a guy on there who was constantly writing things about how he... Uh, was advocating for this position that you, you didn't, he didn't have to eat. He was getting his yes. energy from the sun and breathing. Right. And in that case, the were you there question actually seems kind of relevant because all you've got to go on is this guy's word for it that uh, he never touched a drink or, or any food for his entire life, and that's not really provable. Um, and this guy wound up emailing us a whole bunch of times, and I got in some discussions, which I posted on the blog a little while back, where I was discussing, uh, you know, where, where, how can you prove this, not, this fact to me, and, you know, could you maybe win the amazing Randy's Million Dollar Challenge and stuff like that? Um, and he said, you should go read this website. And he pointed me to a website which looked like, you know, typical horrible marketing jargon to me. And I was like, this website looks like some guy who's trying to sell your shit. And he said, that's ridiculous. We, you know, we, we Hindus are above petty capitalism. And so I searched around, found that sure enough, this guy offers classes for $8,000 and cruises for $15,000, something like that. Uh, I mean, I have, I, it, the, that's about the order of magnitude. And like I said, I didn't go double check this for, for prep work. But you can look it up. It's thousands of dollars for the stuff he offered. Um, and I said, look, I really need something like a peer-reviewed paper. And this breatharian guy pointed me, indeed, to a paper that appeared in a journal, an obscure Indian journal, which brings me to another point about uh, peer review, which is that peer review is actually kind of a minimum requirement for, ch for checking out claims. Um, if nothing's ever appeared about your subject in a peer-reviewed in a peer-reviewed journal at all, then you can be pretty sure that uh, nobody's looked into it very effectively. But when something does show up in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, it's you've cleared the first hurdle, but you haven't actually demonstrated the claim because the point of appearing in a peer-reviewed journal, like I said before, is so that other people can check out your work. Uh, uh, and replicate it. And as far as I was able to tell, this had never happened. And also, uh, a lot of people told me, although I don't want to dismiss it, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. But a lot of people told me that this was not a, a particularly well, a, a particularly reputable paper, 
And the guy who was running the study and said, "Oh yeah, we watched this guy for days, and he never touched, you know, he never ate anything," happened to be a proponent of the, of this particular like Enedia thing. Um, also, there there was uh, like I, I think the Indian Rationalist Society did did a discussion of, of this where they said, you know, somebody really needs to. Uh, somebody really needs to take this guy and do something a lot more rigorous. They said uh, they mentioned this. This was published in 2010. Mataji Prahala Jani, who's supposed to have lived without food or water for 65 years, may have managed to convince a few of this feat, but rationalists are dead against believing it. The Gujarat, the Gujarat Mumbai Rationalist Association has said that Johnny's claims have never been proven, and no reports of his medical tests have been made public so far. So they did this study, they published this paper, but they wouldn't, uh, but they wouldn't release this, and basically they didn't, uh, they didn't offer the methodology by which other people could replicate it. Um, which brings me to this point that knowledge is always tentative. Uh, And the point of bringing scientific rigor in it isn't so that you can have more guys who you can make an argument from authority to. Uh, it's not. It's not so that they can convince individual people. It's so that uh, the method of testing can become so well known and widespread that it could ultimately overturn what turns out to be a pretty important scientific principle, which is. Generally, scientists think that if you stop eating stuff, you die. Um. <laughs> It's one of the reasons why the James Randi Educational Foundation, in their million-dollar uh, prize and stuff, um, won't test some claims like this. Right. Uh, the guy who says I can jump off of the Empire State Building uh -huh. and float down with, you know, I can be naked without assistance and float down. Um, yes, that's an extraordinary claim that it would be very interesting to uh, test and demonstrate that it were actually true. Um, but if you can't devise a test protocol that has the safety features in there um, to ensure that the person isn't just going to die for their <laughs> potentially misguided belief, then you don't do the test. And so the people who say, I can go for years without eating, well, first of all, it's kind of impractical to, to test that. Um, but it could be done. Right. It's just that what you would most likely end up with is somebody who dies Yeah, and that's if, not if very it, good and, publicity for the Randy Foundation. And so what you would need to do is, before you get to the point where you can test that, you need to demonstrate that there's good reason to think that the claim um, uh, could be true, is, is likely right. true. Because science is built up bit by bit on a whole bunch of different evidence corroborating it. Mm. And one of the mistakes that creationists always make is that they, they look for magic bullets. They're like, if we could find this one thing that... that overturns evolution, then scientists would slap their foreheads and say, oh my God, you know, we've been totally wrong all this time. Uh, and it's like, no, you would still have to come up with a framework to explain how your new theory, whatever it is, explains all of the cross-correlation that we have between like geology and uh, uh, paleontology and Uh, the age of the Earth being established through astronomy, looking at redshift and stuff like that. To you know, young Earthism is particularly bad because uh, 
you know, even even most creationists are ashamed to try to go against the vast mountain of scientific evidence that shows that the universe is billions of years old, not thousands. Um, I guess that's it. Okay. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, I, I've done some talks about um, the difference between, uh, or the, the important things about testability and falsifiability and the fact that, um, when, for example, the James Rand Educational Foundation tests quote-unquote paranormal claims, right. what, they're, what they're testing is not so much uh, a, the claim of what an individual can do or the phenomenon is paranormal in the sense that it is extraordinary and it is a departure from what we understand about reality. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that they can ever do is demonstrate that the phenomenon has actually occurred. They cannot verify a supernatural causation for it. That's beyond the veil of what science can right, investigate. Right, sure. And also, um, the example you mentioned earlier of jumping off the Empire State Building and, li and living, I'm sure that, like, let's say if David Copperfield was given enough time uh, and and a lot of leeway, he could figure out how to appear to jump off the Empire State Building without dying. Um, and that's why... You know, and that's another reason why this incredibly specific claim of jumping off the Empire State Building can't be the kind of thing they test. Because apart from the fact that it could potentially kill the guy, it's like, well, it's got to occur under these very narrow conditions right. where where we can observe and set up every aspect to test just only exactly the thing that you're claiming is the supernatural element. And so you don't have to jump all the way off the Empire State Building, but if you can maybe levitate a pen that we provide you so, to show that there's some kind of anti-gravity going on, that would be more convincing. Yeah, when we, when we start working, talking about test protocols, they're, they're designed uh, specifically to look for the things that we would identify as, um, what's that word? Oh, yeah, cheating, <laughs> um, which is one of the reasons why there are so many... Uh, magicians involved in uh, the skeptic movement because uh, they are experts in making people think that something happened that didn't. Right, exactly. So finding testable claims is, is, is often difficult, and I think some of the things that are portrayed as testable claims um, aren't actually, or we're not testing what people are saying we're testing. But yep. we can get to that another time. Let's, uh, let's start off with Corey from Schenectady. How are you? Yeah, and I'm Good. just going to remind the audience that Corey is a longtime repeat caller. No, this is the second. This is the third time, actually. Oh, okay. That's long enough. Sure. Uh, you guys make the claim that you don't know how the universe got here, right? Um, Correct. Well, depends on what you mean by no, but uh, <laughs> yes. So, yes. Well, like I said, it depends on what you mean by no. Uh, well, I'm... You make the claim, you don't know. I've heard you say that several times. You don't know how the universe works. Sure. Before the Big Bang. Um, okay, so, so why, is it, why is it wrong for me to know? Well, how do you how know? Do you know? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, yeah how, no, we how know do you know that you that think the, that. How do you know? How do you, two hosts here. How do you know it's not true? Uh, you're shifting the burden of proof. I, we don't have to Doesn't just matter. prove that. Why, why does that matter? Why, why, why does do it to, matter? Okay. Why don't you have to have the burden of proof? Because we're not the ones that, cl that are claiming that, that we know. I'm sorry, well, Corey. Exactly. So Corey, since you don't know, Corey, why can't I know? Uh, 
Corey, knowledge is not something that you simply assert. Knowledge is demonstrated. And if you make a claim to knowledge, you need to demonstrate that it's true. Otherwise, you have, there's no that? good... That's the way reason works. Okay, That's hey, Corey, the way... your reason. Corey, are you infallible? What do you mean by that? D are you always right? I think he means get a dictionary. Are you? Okay, you we're not play, I'm not playing this game. <laughs> Goodbye. See, I'm not gonna, I told you this is a I'm not going to play the are you, were you, how do you know, why. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Um, we establish a burden of proof because we understand that the application, by the way, you said, well, that's your reason. No, 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 there's, there's simply reasoning. Uh, there is the critical examination of evidence. Now, logic is not something where I've got my logic and you've got your logic. We know why, we know what logic works and why. There's a reason why I stick to propositional logic and, and constructed syllogisms, at, at least conversationally. Um, and there's a reason why we establish the burden of proof. And that's because in your world, Corey, you get to claim that you know and you have no burden of proof. And so can a hundred other people all know answers that don't agree with yours. And so now we're in a world where there's 101 different propositions out there that all claim that they know and none of them agree with each other and none of them want to take on the burden of proof. And what does the reasonable person do? Nah, screw all you guys. The first one of you that can actually demonstrate that your claim is true that's where we're going to start saying, okay, let's investigate this further and find out if it is true. But all of you who are claiming that you shouldn't have any burden of proof, there's no reason any of us should care at all what you say. You might as well be saying that you know that M&Ms created the universe because <laughs> you have just as much evidence for that. Yeah, and this is exactly what I was talking about at the beginning about basically why science exists. Because as far as we've recognized, there haven't been any infallible people around. We, we're, we've generally observed that people can be wrong about a lot of stuff. And the point is to come to some kind of testable demonstration of your claims in just say, in, instead of just saying, I know this, I know it, I know it, I know it. You can't prove I don't know it. Yeah, I, I love it. How do you know? Well, in the beginning, God. Well, okay, yeah, that great. wasn't how he knows what he knows. That was the thing he was claiming. Yeah. Yeah, when I when we we talk about we ask people to tell us what they believe and why, the why is the important part. The right. what is far less important. Um, and if you aren't willing to address the why, then you are not being intellectually honest with yourself or us. And I don't see why we should waste any actual time on those conversations. Right. Um, you know, I find it really sad. I mean, it would be different if I was asserting um, a specific claim and you were asserting another claim and you said that you don't have to provide evidence as long as I'm not going to. I, I could see where that could be a point made. But when you say that, when I've just pointed out that I'm not claiming to know how this happened, uh, then I'm the one who's in the open-minded position of being willing to be convinced based on evidence, and I'm also the one who's demonstrated that they care about truth. Because if you care about truth, you look for a way to find the truth, to demonstrate that what you know maps to reality. And Corey's not interested in whether or not his knowledge maps to reality. He just believes that it's true, doesn't care about any burden of proof. Well, good for you. I mean, congratulations. You have set yourself up with... Uh, 
a, a, a vapid, uh, defenseless proposition. I, I hope it serves you well. The rest of us are going to focus on reality and try to find some truth, and we care about actually demonstrating it. And not jumping off the Empire State Building. Yeah. It's kind of, I don't know. Nick and Helena, how are you? I'm great. Can you guys hear me okay? We can. Hey, thanks so much for taking my call. I really, really admire what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I think it's kind of serendipitous, actually, that y'all are taking my call right after the last caller because um, I think it piggybacks really nicely off of what he was saying. Which is exactly why I think he claims. <laughs> so it's not serendipity. Um, well, it's, it's fortuitous that you called today. So go ahead. Yeah, there we go. I think that sometimes theists like the last caller mistakenly think that atheism requires a belief that the universe came from nothing. And I think there are sort of two points that I would that I would use to refute that or at least to talk about it. One is that I'm an atheist and I don't make a claim that the universe came from nothing. And the second thing is I think that we may someday soon, if the research on the nature of nothing advances quickly enough, actually be able to make a claim about how the universe might have come from nothing if we really understand what that means. I'd love to get your thoughts on those two things. You'd probably be better off getting Lawrence Krauss's thoughts on it. Um, yeah. Uh, Lawrence, I had, I had a brief conversation with him when we were in Kamloops um, because there's still this issue of something I brought up today at the talk about people using the same word to mean two different things. We've seen it mm-hmm. um, yeah. kind of with skepticism. We've seen it with atheism. And in philosophical circles and scientific circles, we're seeing it with nothing. Also known as mm-hmm. the equivocation fallacy. Yeah. And so... Sure. What philosophers mean by nothing um, and what uh, physicists mean by nothing, uh, those two are not necessarily equivalent. Um, I, think, I think you're right that we, we are going to be getting to a point where we have a much better understanding, if such an understanding is possible. Um, and you're also right that, that theists are often seem to be confused that um, if you're an atheist, you must believe X. Well, atheists and atheism only address the question or the issue of whether or not a god exists. And right. So and I it's think entirely the possible. thing in terms of refuting the cosmological argument, because I hear so many times people, uh, atheists trying to refute the cosmological argument, saying, I don't necessarily accept the premise that the absence of God means the, the universe came into being from nothing, instead of saying, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to lose my train of thought, instead of saying... Um, that a state of absolute nothingness is not necessarily whatever need have existed. Yeah, like I, I'm, actually, the, I'm actually with Tracy on, on nothingness, and also, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Scott Clifton, who, who posts on YouTube his theoretical bullshit. Um, he he t- <laughs> has, a, has a slightly different take on it, where that nothing is not the sort of thing, it doesn't, it's not a thing, um, and you couldn't act upon it. So even this idea that there was a God who created the universe from nothing, um, that is, is a philosophical impossibility because God would have to be acting on nothing and nothing isn't a thing that you can act mm-hmm. on, you know. And mm-hmm. so there's a bunch of, bunch of different confusion around here uh, about this. And the nuts and bolts of it is actually pretty simple. And that is there's a limit to what we can know um, currently about the origins of the universe. We have a model, uh, a Big Bang cosmology, that provides the best current description that 
maps accurately with the data that has been submitted to peer review that makes predictions about things that we would discover, like cosmic microwave background radiation. Those new, uh, those, the, the data that we discover from investigation maps to that model. Um, this continues as other people investigate it. Either the data conforms to that model or it doesn't. And if it does, then that builds up more and more uh, support for that particular model. And if it doesn't, yeah. then we begin to investigate and we can correct that model. And so mm-hmm. all of this, and, and this kind of goes back to Corey's just wild assertion that he knows, um, all of this is the process that is science that helps us not make a claim that X is true, but to demonstrate the best model that fits the observations and, so, and, and how productive they are. And how do we convince people then who make a claim that the philosophical idea of nothing or the philosophical state of nothing can't have existed, how do we convince people that that state is either an impossibility or is not being claimed by anyone? Because that seems to be a, a catching point so many times that they can't comprehend the idea that just because they can think of nothing, that it actually is any sort of physical possibility. I'm not sure that I would try. I, th- I think uh, rather than trying to convince somebody that something's impossible, uh, sometimes <laughs> it just pays to be kind of bullheaded. So when, when they say, you're an atheist, you must believe uh, that you know the universe came from nothing, I would just say, no, I don't. Why? Okay. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, you could continue repeating that because they're making yeah. a, an assertion without any evidence. And I think that if you want to move the conversation in a productive direction, uh, I wouldn't try to bog people down with uh, philosophical mumbo-jumbo when they're the kind of people who, who don't get it. Yeah, it's one of those things um, where also... And, and at this point, Nick, I'm going to go ahead and let you go, but I appreciate the call. Great. Well, thank you guys both so much. Thanks. Uh, you were talking before, Russell, about the uh, were you there. You, you mentioned it <laughs> right. briefly. Yeah. There was Can an amus- amusing email that we got, um, which, and, and I'm not going to advocate for, for this as, a, as an actual response, but I, I did enjoy it, which is the next time one of these creationists or somebody asks, you know, were you there, you should just say, yes. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't there, you can't possibly prove that I wasn't. So, I mean, if you're just going to cite nonsensical authorities like the Bible, well, what's to stop me from doing the same thing? Of course I was there when the universe was formed. Prove me wrong. Right. It, it kind of puts, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not the sort of thing I'd ever do in a, in a public debate as anything other than a, a joke. Um, but it was amusing. Yeah, I mean, it's a stupid question. And, you know, that is an appropriately stupid answer. So we'll go to uh, Cater in London. How are you? Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Um, the subject I would like to uh, to discuss, and first of all, sorry for my English. I'm, I am French, so I'm, I'll try to be as uh, to the point as, as quick as possible and try to express myself clearly. Uh, basically, I would like to talk about gay marriage and um, adoption of children by by gay um, by gay couples. Have you emailed us, by the way? Sorry? Have you emailed us? We got an email about this topic from Europe recently. Uh, no, no, not, not at okay. all, no. Never okay. Mind. No. Uh, basically, um, here in France, and, and uh, what I've noticed, uh, generally speaking, uh, in the Western countries, um, there is, uh, we are passing laws, especially in France, to, um, 
to have the uh, the gay community, gay people, to be able to to get married mm -hmm. and also to eventually adopt children. Yeah. And uh, very often we have two clearly distinct group of people who are uh, either for the gay marriage or opposing it, which are often the atheists on one side who are pro-gay marriage and pro-adoption, and on the other side we have all the religious groups, the Christians, the Muslims opposing it. Yep. Uh, what I'd like to discuss is basically I am an atheist, but I have to say on this case, it's because I'm an atheist that I sort of oppose gay marriage and gay adoption. If you, if you. Okay. So, so before we, <laughs> yes. before we actually let's take them individually. Um, so you're an atheist, yes. and you're you oppose gay marriage. Why? Yes. I want to ask. Oh, actually, to, just so we can make sure to skip to a particular point. Are you against? All marriage or just gay marriage? Uh, no, or basically what I'm uh, what I'm trying to um, what I'm opposed to is not so much that uh, gay people uh, can live together or even get married, but mostly what the consequences will be later on when it comes to adopting children. Yeah, no, no, but are you against on. all marriage or just gay marriage? I don't really see the point in marriage. Okay, so you so why bother arguing against gay marriage specifically when what you're really probably aiming at because is to get rid of is to get rid of all marriage altogether? Why don't you just propose that as legislation and and not specifically propose something that would be discriminating? All right, because because um, that's to me it sounds like a first step in marriage, which will give uh, rights like all, all other um, type of marriage, basically heterosexual marriage, for gay um, gay people who are married, get, getting the same right and thus getting the right to adopt children. Okay, hang on. Irrespective of irrespective of adoption, you just you just said something that uh, a minute ago you said you didn't have an objection to gay people getting married, but you oppose gay marriage. Uh, yes, when mm -hmm. it comes to the right to adopt, okay, because it, give, it will give them eventually the, the right to adopt. No, no, well, you, those are, those two things are equivalent. Allowing people, allowing gays to marry, is equivalent to gay marriage, and you're for one and against the other, and that's confusing. Oh, okay, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not very clear on that. Okay, basically, when you are married as a heterosexual couple, maybe it's not the same in the U.S., but you have the right. To adopt children, right? You know who else has the right to adopt children? I don't but know. I, I don't know if this is the case in France, but single people can adopt children. Marriage oh. is not a requirement. Okay. All right. So uh, let's move to uh, then. Um, then I'm, I might be wrong on that topic, but my concern is mostly on the adoption. Okay. Why are you concerned about homosexuals adopting children? Because, um, as an atheist, I believe in the theory of evolution. What, what does that have to do oh, with right. it? It has absolutely nothing uh, to do with it. I'll try to explain myself. It's because I'm sorry, is your concern that so many people are going to turn gay that there will be no children born because we have this huge underpopulation problem where we're going to run no. out of people? Is that what you're no, telling no. us? No, no, that's not. Uh, um, what I mean is, if I... If I if I, my understanding for the theory of evolution is basically we have evolved um, as, a, uh, as men and as women. Basically, nature creates men and women, right? And, uh, and um, no. that's the basis of the couple with the men. No. Who have children, um, will have, it, will have an, it has an impact of whether a child is uh, basically raised by a mother and a father. No. Rather than 
No, see, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, evolution doesn't tell us at all about how things are or should be. Um, and to claim that it does is to commit something called the naturalistic fallacy. Um, okay. Additionally, we already know that children who are raised, adopted and raised by gay couples, turn out mm -hmm. just fine. Mm -hmm. And I think there's no evidence either that they're more likely to turn gay themselves. Not that it would matter if they did. Well, his objection isn't that. It's about... Okay. Anyway. Okay. So, so what, what, what you're telling me is that um, basically a child who is uh, raised by um, a woman and a man would, would psychologically develop the same way as... Um, being no two children, no two children two develop men. exactly the same way psychologically. What difference does that make? But the, the question is, why did why did nature create two sex? Okay, now, now here's here's part of the problem. Here's part of the problem. This is where I get a bit. Uh, why did nature create great gay people? So here's part of the problem. You just ask, why did nature do something? Um, that implies some intent or planning, which is the core mm -hmm. of the naturalistic fallacy. Nature didn't intend to do anything or do anything for some purpose. Nature is okay. just what happened. Now, here's what we know. We know mm -hmm. that children can be raised by an individual, by a mm -hmm. pair of individuals who are heterosexual and of opposite gender identities by a pair of individuals who are of the same gender and identity, by groups of people, by families. All of them will develop slightly differently because every child is different. But we, we can look into this and investigate, are there family structures that mm -hmm. are harmful to the development of children? And what we find is mm -hmm. that homosexual couples do not qualify in the harmful to children category. And in fact, some of the, in some of the studies, in some of the cases, those children have turned out better adjusted, performed better uh, education-wise. And there are plenty of heterosexual families that have their own kids and or adopt kids who raise those kids in absolutely terrible, vile conditions that mentally, that result in the, the trauma to the psychological disposition of the kid, as well mm -hmm. as physical issues, as well as uh, educational issues. And I think that it would be more productive for all of us to focus on, let's address actual problems in child rearing, mm -hmm. that we have some responsibility to do so, within whatever those limits are, and not run around making naturalistic fallacies saying, well, I don't really have any data, but I suspect that kids raised by homosexuals are going to be not as well adjusted as kids oh, raised no, with a mother I and a father. I, I didn't say that. I, it's I, what you I, were I, implying. Um, was I? Um, what, what, I uh, what I was trying to say is that, isn't it a bit, aren't we a bit rushing without enough basically... Um, no, no. no. The, study, the studies have been done already. People no. have already been concerned like you that there's a problem with gay people raising children and they did the studies and they found out there was not. But none of that matters. <laughs> the, this question, aren't we rushing? Aren't we rushing? First of all, no, we're not rushing. Second of all, 
You do not wait until you have an evidence that something is okay to do before you permit it. Instead, you permit things until you have good reason to think that you should not permit them. Right, because we have all been other wrongly, things being we have, equal. Hang on, we have been wrongly denying people equal rights based on naturalistic fallacies and all sorts of assumptions and fear that something may go wrong, and that is what is wrong. Not allowing people to have those rights is what is wrong. Instead, you allow people to have rights and Tell you have good reason to take them away. Fifty okay. years ago, judges were arguing that it's unnatural and not okay for black and white people to get married to each other, and they made all kinds of arguments, which are the same kinds of things that are being being made now. And we look back at that now and think those people were obstructionist jerks who were deliberately roadblocking people's civil rights to do the stuff they want to do. And the other that thing, is not rushing into anything. The other thing on this is kind of uh, cherry picking bits of information and viewing it out of context. So let me let me look at it this way: um, a mixed race couple, and we'll go for the most obvious ones: um, someone of African descent and someone of Caucasian descent. They marry, and they have kids, whether they adopt those kids or have them naturally. There are people who will say, look, those kids are being brought up in an environment that is counterproductive to them because, at a minimum, they're going to suffer potential teasing and ostracizing from the community because they have a mixed-race parent, a set of parents. And you know what? Those people are right. That's a real potential danger that is a real potential risk to the kids that they're going to be teased and ostracized by other people because their parents are of mixed race. But the solution is not to deny mixed race couples the right to have kids. The solution is to fix society so that bigots aren't picking on kids because their parents don't match the naturalistic the design that people think exists. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's the right example to compare the race to... Um, no, it's exactly the right example because they were using exactly the same arguments back then. All right, okay. Uh, so just to, um, to to leave you there, just to basically conclude. So what you're saying is basically that it doesn't matter if a child is raised by a woman, by two women or two men. It doesn't really matter at all uh, because basically this idea of having a father figure and a, and a mother does not have any consequences on If the we believe that, then we would forcibly take kids away from single-parent families on the grounds that one parent at a time is not fit to raise the kid. And we don't do that. All right. And there is... Okay. All right. Thank you very much for, uh, for your patience. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Christopher in... Is it Catlitzburg? Yes, it's Catlitzburg, Kentucky. Um, I got something to say back to what Corey was saying. I think people use God for things that's not easily explainable, for things that they don't understand. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what I'm calling about is to say that you can't have omniscience and free will. You can only have one or the other. Actually, that's not completely true, but, uh, boy, no, the free will discussion <laughs> is a long one. Um so it, it is, depends. It is, it is the, the Christian model where, and there's three prongs of this, where the God is omniscient, knows everything without error, is the creator and had choices in what they could create. 
Those three things combined violate the possibility of free will. Now, Christianity asserts all three of those, and so their God is in direct conflict with free will. And they will try to get out of this by saying, hey, you can have omniscience and free will because um, I, I just my knowing what you're going to do doesn't change the fact that you still chose to do it. Um, okay, well, and that's why um, there's three prongs there. Well, say that's true. Let's just say the Christians are true, and it don't change the fact that you're going to do it. And it, like, well, they're, no, they're wrong. They're, they're wrong yeah, but, because their God specifically chose the action. See, the, yeah. there's this, when God created the universe, according, uh, you know, in, in the Christian ideal, he chose to create this specific universe where I would take this specific action and did not choose to create a universe in which I did not take that action. That means that the ultimate responsibility for the choice is on that God who chose which action I would take. And that is why it's in violation of free will. If you, the, the excuse that they use is to ignore the three, the other two prongs of this and say, no, God exists outside of time, so he sees all of time as one thing, and therefore you can know what decisions people will make without actually interfering with their ability to make them because you, it would be like watching a movie in reverse because God has that ability. So it's the yes. specific decision to create this universe where I took an action that violates free will. Hey, is Christianity incompatible with parallel universes or, like, one-off parallel universes? The, the, that discussion, one of the other things that's come up is this idea of aliens. And I'll get right back to you, Christopher. I'll keep this short. <laughs> I'm not saying uh, it was aliens. <laughs> par parallel universes, aliens, and stuff like that. And I've watched theologians tap dance around this, um, and they have no answer. But anyway, yeah, continue. Christians don't like sci-fi very much. Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> anyway, Christopher, go ahead. Um, this is the way I look at it. You know, God has prior knowledge before you're even born. He knows your destination already. So if God knows my destination is hell, aren't I brought into this world condemned to hell already? Calvinists think that. So, yeah, Calvin, well, Calvinists are that way. But here's the thing. The fact that somebody has knowledge of an event does not, on its own, impact free will. For example, there may not be free will at all, and um, we can have that discussion some other time and, and have had that discussion. Um, and, and I tend to look at free will as generally illusory, but I'm, I'm kind of in the compatibilist game, uh, vein. But let's imagine, for example, that I had a time machine and that the universe, in fact, does have free will, that you have free will. And I use that time machine to go back to yesterday... And at, at that point, I know what you're going to do. I know that you're going to call the show and make this argument. That doesn't change whether or not you made that of your own volition. In and of itself, my knowing that, uh, because I have a time machine. And the, the way around this for Christians, or the way they attempt to get around it, which is false because they have all three prongs that I talked about, is to look at God as a time machine, uh, as divorced from time. Right, but the time machine yeah. argument can work. I mean, like, if you're watching a reality show that's taped, um, <laughs> I, well, I'm not sure. After you finish watching this reality show, you know everything that they have done. And if you were able to maybe deliver that show back in time so that only you could see it, uh, but but it wouldn't change anything in the past... You'd know in advance how the reality show ends before it ends, but that wouldn't change the behavior of the people. Yeah, in part it requires not just foreknowledge, uh, but foreknowledge, foreknowledge without the afterknowledge, I guess. 
there is a temporal component to this, which is, is kind of tricky, and it, it would probably bore people to tears. Yes. And, and one more topic before I go. Sure. Uh, Christians, they all the time tell me that I have faith. Um, they say I have faith that the sun's going to rise. I don't have faith. There's a difference between faith and knowledge. Yep. You know, I know the sun's going to rise tomorrow from recorded events. Well, actually, you, know? you don't. Well, all right. Um, you know in the colloquial sense that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Um, yeah. what I, the way I've answered it is that I don't have faith. I don't have faith in anything. I define faith as the excuse people give for believing something when they don't have a good reason. And if you have a good reason, then you're no longer appealing to faith. Um, they, they tend to reject that and say, oh, you have faith. And what they mean by faith is you're not certain. They just point to the fact that you're not absolutely certain about something, and so you're relying on faith. And to me, that's a useless definition of faith because there's so little that we're absolutely certain of. I'm not absolutely certain the sun will rise tomorrow um, because I don't know that it won't blow up in the next 10 seconds through some freak accident. So I, I certainly do not have absolute certainty that the sun's going to come up. But if, yeah. if all you mean by faith is you don't have absolute certainty, well, congratulations, you're right, but you're using faith in a way that just doesn't map to anything useful. Okay, let me, let's say this. There's a difference between blind faith and faith from knowledge. Um, uh, I wouldn't use knowledge that way. I would say there there are degrees of certainty that we all acknowledge. Uh, you, I mean, there are... Re- you should try to believe things based on good reasons, and if you don't have, like, absolute certainty about something, you have to make the best choice that you can based on your limited facts. Uh, faith is more like uh, coming up with something wildly unlikely just because you feel like it, even though it has no evidence for it or, it, uh, or you have evidence for the opposite. Faith is what Corey exercised at the beginning of the show when he claimed to have knowledge and also claimed that he had no re- had no responsibility to demonstrate that there was any reasonable basis for that knowledge. I don't have faith. I don't have faith the sun's going to come up tomorrow. I trust that the sun will come up tomorrow at some at some degree of certainty, short of absolute certainty. And the reason for that is that I have a bulk of evidence about not just past events, I'm not just saying the sun's going to come up tomorrow because it came up today, but because we also understand the movements of, of uh, planets in the solar system and the fact that our sun rotates on its axis. If the sun doesn't come up, our Earth rotates on its axis is what makes the sun appear to come up. Um, we have enough of an understanding about that to justify... That it, first of all, if I'm wrong, uh, you're never going to know about it. If the sun doesn't come up tomorrow, nobody's going to prove me wrong. I mean, we, we would all be dead. This sounds like a stealth Pascal's wager. In but anyway, we're, we're short on time. Thanks for the call, Christopher. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. All right. Uh, I'll throw caution to the wind. Peter in Colonia, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Hi, I'm, I'm an atheist, and I really like the show. Wanted to thank you guys for putting it on. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, my question was on the topic of objective morality. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never really heard a good definition of it. My, my understanding of it seems to be that uh, if something is objectively wrong, then it should be wrong from all reference frames. No. That's that's not how I would use it. Um, then, 
Please give me yours. Well, he actually, we're not going to have time in the show. If you Google for superiority of secular morality, you'll find mm-hmm. a video online of a talk that I gave for a couple of years. Um, the nuts and bolts of it are that um, what we mean by morality. I'd also recommend Sam Harris's book, uh, The Moral Landscape, which says a lot of the same things that, that I've been saying. Um, but the nuts and bolts of it are that morality, if it means anything, it's about the well-being of thinking creatures, and that's how Sam puts this. And so okay. as physical beings in a physical universe, our actions have consequences that are dictated by physical laws. They are not merely products of our mind. If I, um, if I punch Russell in the face, um, that's all determined by by the laws of physics in the physical reality and I don't like this metaphor I know and <laughs> but but the result of that is harm now you can have conversations about well why do we care about avoiding harm and why do we care about well-being and I don't care a rip for those discussions because mm-hmm. I I'm already fine with saying that when we define when we talk about morality we are already conceding that we have a concern about well-being if the only yeah. objection is why do we care about well-being versus not the answer is that we do we are the products of uh, beings who cared about that because the ones who didn't care about it died off right and i mean to some extent the things that people value are going to be somewhat subjective uh, yeah. You know, if I like one thing that Matt doesn't like, then that's, uh, you know, then that's something that's subjective to my desires and interests. But once we acknowledge that people's desires and interests are fixed, which I think is kind of what you're saying, Matt, uh, and you should also check out um, Dan Finke's blog, Cam- Camels with Hammers, because he's a okay. philosopher with a lot of interest in this topic uh, also. Once you've acknowledged uh, what these desires are, the question of how to maximize uh, actions with with respect to uh, doing the best for everybody involved is can be kind of an objective question. Now, objective, yeah. objective and subjective morality, because we're already talking about morality, and, I, and I'm, I'm pointing out that it's about well-being, that's a different subject from whether or not uh, moral relativism is true, and I reject moral relativism. Moral relativism is, is the idea that something is or isn't mo- moral because a culture or society declares it to be so. And that puts you in this position where you're saying there are no moral truths, there are only moral opinions. And as long as morality is about well-being, there must be moral truths, just like there are truths about our physical well-being that as a generally 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 speaking drinking battery acid is not good for you and generally speaking we can make similar claims about other actions well well, yeah i was was going to make the point that um if we can have a discussion about what a person values from their moral system and whether or not a certain action will cause harm or benefit that that thing that is valued whether it's a person or something, uh, some kind of possession, uh, it, it's always seemed to me that, that uh, religious people will try to claim that their belief system, their morality, is objective in order to shut off debate. Yeah, it's not. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for example, I, we'd have to go through religions independently, but for example, Christianity, which isn't one thing, um, there's many different Christianities. Um, yeah. And so 
their their solution to this problem. First of all, here's the thing. Uh, I'm aware of no objections to secular moral systems that are both true and, as in there are real problems and not just, you know, non, non-problems, and that those problems are solved by appealing to religious morality. Uh, and furthermore, I don't think religious moral systems are moral systems at all. They're pronouncements about morality. They are, there's no mechanism there. There's no path to discovery of the why of morals. It's generally along the lines of divine command or this is God's nature, any number of things like that. And so saying yeah. that there's an objective source in, in a God is no more a solution to a problem than um, saying that the objective source is uh, pick a random book where the author is is dead and can't change his mind, and now we are stuck with this fixed set. That is an objective standard that we can then value things with. Um, also, think of it this way. Uh, you know, the, the question of determining what are the right mo- moral actions are actually kind of similar to the question of determining what's true about the universe through science. Um, the universe exists outside of us, and it does what it does independent of what we think about it. But as I've been saying, our knowledge about what's true isn't very good, and so it's our job not to make stuff up uh, that makes us feel comfortable, but to actually observe things and figure out what's actually true in the universe. Similarly, there can be an objective morality that's out there to be discovered... And yet, coming up with some religious proclamation that, oh, I absolutely know what it is, and therefore no further thought about it is necessary, that doesn't solve the problem. It just gives you a convenient illusion of knowledge of absolute morality. Well, yeah, well, it seems like uh, Christians uh, will will oftentimes uh, claim objective morality because the person, the entity enforcing it is omnipotent. Right. As if the power of the person distributing the justice makes it moral. Their their system doesn't distribute justice anyway. Um, Yeah. One of the objections that I get from from Christians quite often is that, um, well, under your system, Matt, somebody could slaughter an entire family, and as long as you don't actually catch them, they're never going to get punished. And I say, that's correct, it could happen. I mean, that's true either. (laughs) And under your system, the same thing is true, except that it's possible that that person gains forgiveness and salvation and gets to go on and enjoy a pleasant, wonderful life, a wonderful afterlife. Eternally. At At least the potential for injustice in the system that I'm advocating dies it dies with us rather than, you know, continuing on afterwards. We are almost completely out of time. The one last little point to make on this um, that I have uh, continually addressed Christians with is, how on earth did you determine that God is the good one and Satan is the evil one? What objective <laughs> standard did you point to other than God? Uh, and if you pointed to God, how is that not a big cheating circular argument? We're completely out of time. Thanks, everybody, for the calls. Uh, thanks to the crew to putting this together. Thanks to Russell for It's been a pleasure, Mr. Today. Dillahunty. Uh, and as former president of the ACA, I'll see you next week. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, 
Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.